You can open your Bibles to Colossians chapter 1. Many of you know we were announcing for a few weeks the Judgment and Mercy Conference. Several of you were able to attend, which I was thankful for. Uh, You know, they changed the schedule to accommodate us better, so I was really glad I didn't have to say, can you change the schedule for us? By the way, nobody's coming. Um, So really grateful for those of you who could be there. I know uh, others of you would have wanted to be there and weren't able to. We we did this in partnership with uh, Ridgeview Bible Church down there in Shadron, Nebraska, The Lord has allowed us to develop a great relationship with that church. We are thankful for them and uh, for their ministry. Jeff spoke on judgment in the Old Testament, and then I had to get up and do judgment in the New Testament. And I don't usually have to follow Jeff. Usually, Jeff has to follow me. So that was was different. Um, But the conference went really well. It was great to partner with them. And so this morning, uh, the goal was that each individual church would then take a Sunday morning and talk about judgment and mercy as it relates to Christ, or as it relates to the cross. And so that's why we're taking, as our text this morning, Colossians chapter 1, and we want to look at judgment and mercy in Christ, or judgment and mercy at the cross. The English Puritan Stephen Charnock said this about God, He, he says, he works with a becomingness to his own excellency. He works with a becomingness to his own excellency. I know that's old English, right? You might think of, well, what is it to be unbecoming? It's to be unfitting, right? So so he acts in a way that is not inappropriate. He acts in a way that is always appropriate and fitting with his very nature and his character, his excellencies. In other words, God will always hate evil, and He will always love goodness. He will always hate evil, and He will always love goodness. So when we talk about judgment, what we're talking about is God's active hatred, or God's active displeasure towards that which offends His excellencies, His holy nature and character. And it's his, it, it would be the inverse as well. It's his active pleasure in that which is good. These are not just feelings, right? I, I use that word active on purpose. These aren't just feelings that God has. He feels hatred towards sin and he feels love towards that which is good. But these are, these are active dispositions of the Lord. They are followed, they are, they are things that God observes and followed by subsequent actions. In other words, he punishes evil and he rewards good because he always acts in a way that's fitting to his nature and his character. So our, our goal is to see how does the cross then speak to these, these, this nature of God who hates evil and loves goodness. You know, we live in a world that's gone mad and it has been so from the beginning. Right? The falls in Genesis 3, by Genesis 4, they're killing each other. By Genesis 6, they only do evil all the time, continually. Right? So, so that's the backdrop for, for how God can express, or will express, judgment and mercy. There's a need for judgment. And then there are those who are in need of mercy. So we want to look at how, how then does God demonstrate His judgment 
and His mercy in a world that's bound in sin, in a creation that has rebelled against Him in almost every way. Well, we see that God's plan from before the foundation of the world was to display His glory, to, to demonstrate who He is to the world. And He does that supremely in the cross of Jesus Christ, where we see God's, God's desire and the necessity of punishing sin there on the cross and His willingness to grant mercy to those creatures who are in need. So we see the glory of God and the supremacy of Christ in judgment and mercy. So this morning we're going to look from Colossians chapter 1. We're going to hang out primarily in verses 15 through 20. We'll, we'll, we'll look uh, briefly at 21 through 23. I wanted to have the whole uh, text read earlier. But the bulk of our time is going to be in verses 15 through 20. And there's really, there's really two points this morning. The first sets up the second the first point we see is the supremacy of Christ in all of creation. And then, that's in verses 15 through 17. And then we see that, that something has gone so terribly wrong that there is then the necessity of reconciliation and peace. So you have the, the supremacy of Christ in creation, but, but something has disrupted creation's relationship with God. And so there's this need for reconciliation, and there's this need for peace. And what we see in Colossians is the supremacy of God also in the supremacy of Christ in redemption. So let's look there first at the supremacy of Christ in creation. Look in verse 15, the beginning there. He is the image of the invisible God. Now we know it's not, it's not news to us, right, that God is spirit, right, that he is, he is invisible. You know, I, I don't know if I've told this story before, but one time I was in my attic in our house in Springfield, and I, I stepped wrong, which is inevitable if you're a man and you're in the attic, and I f- like fell through like halfway, you know, I'm like hanging there. And Brennan, I don't know how, he's not here today, so I can use his name up, but I don't know, I remember how old he was, but he's like, um, Dad, uh, can you, is God everywhere? And I said, yeah, he's everywhere. He's like, did you see God when you fell through the roof? <laughs> but if God is omnipresent, right, if he's everywhere, and you can't see him, and we don't see him now, and he's here, right, he's spirits. Jesus, obviously, in the incarnation, then has made the invisible God visible, right? There's times in the Old Testament where God demonstrates his presence in a a pillar of fire, a cloud of smoke, a burning bush, but but by and large, he's invisible, and Jesus is the one who makes the invisible God visible. He is the perfect revelation, then, of the Father. This, This idea of image, it actually reminds us of Genesis chapter 1, when God made man after his own image or after his likeness, Genesis 1 says. And what that, part of what that means, I think it means a lot of things that we don't have time, but part of what that means, we are meant to reflect God. We are meant to reflect his character to one another. But man was made in the image of God, or you might say after the likeness of God. But here it says Jesus is the image of God. He is the image. He is uniquely qualified to represent 
man to God and God to man as the Son of God, as the second person of the Trinity, who is, who is utterly separate from, from us, not, not sinful, not created. We'll see in a minute. He is indeed creator. And through Jesus, God's very nature is clearly seen. Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He is the exact representation of His nature. He is the image of the invisible God. He is the firstborn of all creation. Right? And at first, that that hits us kind of funny. Right? It might sound like Paul saying, Jesus is the first one ever created. Or maybe saying He's the best thing ever created. You know, uh, sadly... In a new, you know, every two years, Lifeway and Ligonier Ministries kind of come together and they do these surveys about what people believe. Sadly, 73%, now now surveys can be funky, but still, 73% of people who claim to believe the Bible is their highest authority said that they agreed with the statement, Jesus is the first and the greatest being created by God. 73% 73% of people who said this is God's word, so they believe that. So we've, we've, got to, we've got to deal with that. That's actually the teaching of the Jehovah's Witnesses, but not the teaching of the Bible. It's, nor is it what Christians have ever believed. So what does this mean? That he's the firstborn of all creation. Well, in the Bible, firstborn can be used one of, one of two ways. You know, based on context, we figure out what the, what the meaning is. Sometimes it, it does simply mean you were the one that was born for, first in your family. And along with that, in, in this culture, along with being the firstborn, there were certain privileges and rights and responsibilities and inheritances that would come to the firstborn. And that's why the word firstborn came to be used in a metaphorical way to describe a person of of prominence, the one who deserves the rights and privileges and responsibilities and inheritance. And whenever we we say like, oh, this is this is a metaphorical, you know, we, we sort of want to demonstrate why we would say that. Am I just making that up to defend my position in the scriptures? Well, no, David, King David, he was the youngest of all his brothers. That's one reason he was selected. He was the youngest of all his brothers, yet Psalm 89, 27 calls him the firstborn. Why? Because David was the king. He wasn't the firstborn in his family, but he had the position of prominence. He had the kingship. He had the rule Even though he wasn't physically born first, he had the position of prominence even over his brothers. So what's Paul saying? And and really, we could go to the next phrase here and prove prove this as well. But what's Paul saying? That Jesus is supreme over all creation. That he holds the position of prominence over everything that has been made. He is preeminent. He is more important than anything in all the universe. He's first place above it all. And clearly, 
That's what Paul means here. And we say, it, we, we say that partly because the very next thing Paul says is Jesus actually created it all. Look there in verse 16. For by him all things were created. And then in case we want to wiggle out of that, he sort of just shuts the door on us. In heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. There is no created thing that exists outside of heaven and earth. There is no created thing that is not either visible or invisible. Jesus created it all with the power and the authority of his own voice. You know, just we we wrestle, right? We get so caught up in like our little corner of the world. It's hard for us to imagine the expanse of the universe, which Christ, through his own power and authority, created. You know, there's been these, uh, uh, America has sent out these spacecrafts, they're unmanned, they're meant to just fly as, as far as they can, right? And one of them is called Voyager 2. It, it, it's traveling at 39,000 miles per hour. And it's going to take almost 300,000 years to reach the furthest star that we can see in our night sky with his voice. Created it all from nothing. Jesus brought it forth in, into existence. And again, just, just in case we think, oh, maybe we've outsmarted Paul. He, he just shuts the door that this could mean, mean anything else, whether visible or invisible. Think of an item in your head. It's either visible or it's invisible. And really what's going is Paul is sort of getting these two extremes. And Jeff has mentioned that Old Testament writers sometimes do this too. They, they get these two extremes, visible and invisible. And the idea is everything in between is also created by Jesus. It's, it's this all-encompassing term. There's nothing, nothing that he has not created. And therefore, he is, a, he is the firstborn. He is supreme. He is prominent over all of it, by him and through him, all things were created. Whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, these are, these are most likely references to spiritual beings, those things that are invisible, angels, even wicked angels. You know, I think, again, he's just sort of piling up terms, not so that we can say, well, thrones means this and principalities means this. It, it's just piling them all together, say everything. You know, H.B. Charles joked that there is no need to differentiate between them because the point is, whatever they are, they're made by God. They're made by Christ. We do know that they're, they're references to the spiritual, invisible world, letting us know that even Satan and demons and angels were created by Christ, and they rest under His supreme authority. They rest under His authority and rule. Now, they weren't created wicked. They rebelled. But the point is, there was nothing that is created that was not created through Jesus. And whatever is made by Jesus, whatever is created by Jesus, is by definition inferior to Jesus. Lesser than. 
And that's why the text says these were made through him and for him. He's not only the the agent of creation, but he's the goal. He's the purpose of creation. It came into being through him, and it came into being for him. I wonder if we believe that. I know we, 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 profess, we profess things, but oftentimes our, our lives don't actually line up with what we, we profess. Do we believe that Jesus Christ is the purpose for all creation? For you yourself, all things were created for Christ. And the main goal of creation was to display the glory of God in Christ Jesus through the Holy Spirit. To put on display the wisdom and the worth and the majesty of God. And we see it most clearly in Jesus Christ, the one who has come to reveal the Father. So all things that exist, whether visible, invisible, spiritual, material, thrones, dominions, powers, it exists not for our sake primarily, but for the sake of Christ. That's instructive for us as well in that we probably pretty regularly need to be reminded that, that God did not create us, Christ did not create us because He, he needed us. It wasn't out of need or, or longing. God was perfectly satisfied within Himself. He didn't need company. He didn't need servants. He didn't need our worship. He never has. He never will. He never lacks anything. If He needed us, we somehow fill something up in Him that was lacking, and that makes Him something less less than God. He is fully sufficient in and of Himself. So He creates in order to display His glory that His creation might enjoy Him forever. To glorify Himself. To invite us to worship Him and to experience the joy of knowing the most glorious being in all the universe. All things were created through Him and for Him. Verse 17, And He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. You see this word before a couple times in the text. I think it implies supremacy as well as like time. He was in the beginning with God, right? John 1.1. 1, 1. But also, since he was there, he's better than what followed. right? He's supreme over what followed. He was in the beginning before anything was made. It teaches us about the eternality of Christ. And therefore, he outranks anything or anyone in the universe. He was before it. He stands before it in supremacy. He stood before it in time. And Christ also sustains His creation. He upholds all of it with His own power. So Jesus created in the beginning. He is the end goal of all creation. And presently, He holds it all together. You know, I woke up this, this morning early and Calvin, like he sometimes does, had crawled into bed. And I could just hear him, you know, breathing before I got out of bed. And I thought, man, God is sustaining his very breath. 
He sustained my very breath and your very breath. Every breath you have taken, he sustained you. He sustains all of creation. He holds it together. It's not by force. It's not by chance. It's by a person. His name is Jesus. So Christ is before all creation. He's the goal of all creation. At the center of all creation, he he stands as the preeminent one who is the one who created us all, every creature, invisible, visible, through him and for him. What an amazing description of, of Christ of the authority and the supremacy of Christ, and really why we ought to fall down and worship Christ. The expectation is that all creation would recognize the supremacy and that all creation would respond appropriately and worship this Lord who has spoken it all into existence. Creation should gladly walk in submission to Christ. But we see there in in verse 20, something has gone terribly wrong. There's a need for reconciliation. There's a need for peace. And it must come through the blood of the cross. So let's look secondly then at the supremacy of Christ in redemption. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead that in everything he might be preeminent. There are three titles there given for Jesus. He's not only supreme over all creation, but he is is supreme over his people, the church. And what we we get in the Bible is, is not only descriptions of the church, but we get imagery of the church, pictures of what the church is. It's a, it's a temple, it's, it's a flock, it's a bride, it's an army. And what we have here is Christ is the head of the body, the church. And Paul really likes to use this illustration for the church. He uses it over in 1 Corinthians where, you know, it's kind of talking about every part of the body has its own function, its own role, and every part of the body needs to play its role. But here in Colossians, it's, he's making a little bit of a different point here. He's using the body metaphor slightly differently. He's emphasizing that Jesus is the head of the body, the church. Like your brain is the control center of your body. If your brain goes offline, your body goes offline. Jesus sustains his church. He is the head of the church. He is the leader of the church. In context, this is a big deal because he, he's fighting this uh, false teaching that would say, you know what, Christ is not enough. You need, to, you need to look elsewhere for some spiritual experience, right? They would sort of get themselves, apparently, from what we can gather from Colossians, sort of get themselves whipped up in these emotional frenzies, these emotional experiences. They thought this was the real avenue to change. Man, if we could worship angels somehow and create this weird worship, then man, that's real change. And they, you know, then, then they brought in like this legalistic practice, right? You can read chapter two and see what Paul's fighting against here. 
They thought they needed to add, add more rules, more guidelines, or, or bring, bring the law, some, like combine this weird mystical angel worship with the law, like let's place the law back over people. Once you're saved, you need to change yourself through legalistic self-righteousness. And one way, you might even physically beat your own body into submission. Right? Discipline yourself. If you just look to yourself and your own will and your own discipline and you punish yourself enough, then you can really change. There's more strength there. And Paul's whole argument is you're looking away from the head when you do that. In fact, you're severing the head from the body. When you look away from Christ to weird angels that were created by Jesus, not weird angels, all right, uh, lesser angels that were created by Christ, why look to them? Why look to, why look to the law when, when that's a shadow of what was to come? Christ fulfilled the law. It's not about asceticism, that's what you need, and Paul warns us the problem with that is it looks like wisdom. Sometimes. Right? Maybe you know somebody that's very legalistic and, and some man, it looks like maybe they're really disciplined. Well, it looks like wisdom sometimes, but it's of no value in putting to death the indulgence of the flesh. So that's what Paul's battling. This false teaching that doesn't want to recognize Christ as the head of the body, the control center, the life sustainer of the body. Jesus is the source of life for the church, and He is sovereign as the head of the church. He is sovereign over the church. So He's preeminent not only in creation, but also among those who recognize Him as supreme and fall down before Him and worship Him as creator of all things. He is before all things. Well, he is the head of the church. He is the beginning. And I think with this idea of beginning, again, it's sort of a temporal thing. And he's the founder. He's the author of our faith. He's the one that went before us and accomplished salvation. He he is before in time, but that means he is before in supremacy. Revelation 22.13, Jesus says, I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. He is the founder of this new people that God has created and is creating called the church. And He is the firstborn of the dead. Again, supreme over all those who will be resurrected or were resurrected. Right? And we've joked about Lazarus. You know, he was more resuscitated. Right? He died again. So he wasn't resurrected in the same sense that Jesus was resurrected, resurrected to never die again. But the reality is, we will all be resurrected, some to eternal life, some to eternal death. And how you relate to Christ determines which one. So Jesus is Yeah, he's the first in time to ever be eternally resurrected. But he's also preeminent over everyone else. Believer, unbeliever will be resurrected. 
You know, I like the way John Calvin was kind of poking at the atheists of his day that denied any kind of resurrection. And when he was poking at them, he said, you know what their problem is? They don't believe that they survived death. They don't believe that they survived death. And it sounds ludicrous, right? What do you mean survive death? Well, our soul survives death and it will be reunited with a body and we will face the Lord. What's the purpose? Why? Look at the end of verse 18. That in everything he might be preeminent. The purpose of Jesus' universal lordship, the purpose of his head over the church, is that he might be preeminent. That he might hold the highest rank. Right? That's what the word preeminent, to hold the highest rank, to be first, to have first place. So Jesus is the the, the agent of creation, he is the purpose of creation, he is the agent of redemption, and he is the purpose of redemption, that all glory might go to, to him. He is of first importance, more excellent than anyone or anything. He outranks anyone or anything in heaven and on earth. Again, that's why Paul would say, why are you looking to these angels? They exist to serve Christ, and he's the head of the body. You're connected to him if you're in Christ. So Christ is to have first place in creation, in in the church, and in redemption, and in your life. And the reality is that this is true whether we regard Him so or not. He, He is preeminent over all whether we recognize Him or not. So the application is less like a question, do you... Do you think about Jesus this way? And more of an appeal, you must recognize Jesus this way. You must see him this way because this is who he is. And you must live and think in such a way and respond to him in such a way that demonstrates that he is supreme over everything. Not only this world, but in accomplishing redemption for our sins. We must submit to him as Lord of all creation and the author of salvation. He is our, for for believers, He is our corporate head that guides and sustains His body. And all these things are so because of verse 19, for in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. We might think of the Lord's presence filling up the temple in Christ. It pleased the Lord that all the fullness of God would dwell in Christ. And the idea is that, that not, not that, you know, like we said in the baptism narrative, not that like Jesus was a normal dude and then the Holy Spirit came and all of a sudden he's like a uh, demigod. He's, that's not it. It's that in the incarnation, God took up residence in a person born God and man, conceived God and man. The incarnation is God the Son condescending to take on human flesh. John 1.14 says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. 
in Christ, the fullness of deity dwelt because He is the God-man, the Son of God. But then there's a second reason given to us. And through Him, verse 20, to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of His cross. Now we said, like, there's an implied need there. Right? It's kind of a weird leap. You go from, like, preeminent, sovereign, ruler of creation. And now there's this need for reconciliation. The question is, why the need? The lordship over creation somehow been disrupted in, in a sense. All things no longer bear the proper relationship that they should bear to the Savior, to Christ, to the Creator. And we know this happened in Genesis 3. And I know a lot of you know there, know Genesis 3, but it might be helpful because I want us to see, see something. So you might flip there if you have a Bible. Genesis chapter 3. Obviously, this is the chapter where Adam and Eve rebel against the Lord. They're tempted by the serpent. The serpent questions the validity of God's word, God's good will. Eve gives in, and apparently Adam was there not really doing anything about it. Should have killed the serpent. Should have thrown the serpent out of the garden. He should have, he should have exercised his rule over creation as the vice region of God. But he doesn't. Right? And so you've got Satan, you've got Adam, and you've got Eve. You've got three created things, three created beings there in rebellion to their creator. And all are judged by God in Genesis chapter 3. And this, this rebellion is so significant that even creation itself falls under this, this curse. Death and curses are the result of their disobedience. God had promised them death. In the Hebrew, it's if you, if you eat this, you will die, die. You will surely die. And so death floods the world, curses flood the world. All three are judged here. Look in the beginning of verse 14 there. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed, cursed are you above all livestock, and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. The woman is cursed in verse 16. I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. Right? The idea isn't that, that a, a wife will sexually desire a husband. That's not really a curse. Right? The curse is that she'll desire to rule over him and he'll rule over her. There's going to be, there's going to be strife and enmity. The man's cursed, his work's going to be hard, the ground's going to be hard, thorns and thistles are going to come out of the ground. All right, so you get the three in rebellion, they're cursed, and creation itself falls under this, it gets affected by this rebellion. But this, this text even, early on, Genesis chapter 3, it's not without hope. Right? We read that part of, the, part of the curse was enmity between woman, man, woman, and the serpent. 
right? Or the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. And there's this, there's this promise embedded in there. The New Testament writers uh, indicate to us that we're perfectly legitimate to understand this as Christ will come through a woman and he will crush the serpent. Right? We get the beginnings of the promise of the gospel here. This is, this is a, 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 a promise that will be filled in later that Jesus is coming and he's going to deal the final blow to the serpents. But what's interesting, and, and what will pertain to our text in a minute, so keep this locked away in your mind. What's interesting, the first gospel promise is not actually given to Adam and Eve. It's a promise to Satan that you're going to be defeated. I'm going to beat you through a child who will be born to a woman. and He will crush your head. So again, kind of keep that in your mind a little bit. That'll help us understand our passage because there's a difficulty here in our text that, that we need to wrestle with. It says that it was God's good pleasure to reconcile all things to himself. Right, and if it ended there, we could probably say, like, obviously, he's just talking about Christians. But then he adds this phrase, whether on earth or in heaven. Right, and this, this gets difficult for us, right? we got to wrestle with this. This is hard because earlier we saw that, that Jesus is supreme over all creation, whether things in heaven or things on earth, and we saw that that included these, these invisible things, created things in heaven and on earth. Some of those have rebelled, and they will remain in rebellion against the Lord. Right? And they will be judged for their rebellion against the Lord. So we have to wrestle with, well, what does Paul mean here? That all things in heaven and on earth will be reconciled through Christ. Now, some of you are already looking at me strange. Like, some have tried to use this passage to say that everyone... Whether you repent or not, whether you trust in Christ or not, whether you're forgiven by Christ or not, everyone will go to heaven. Right? I heard one false teacher, you know, he sort of started to introduce this doctrine to his church, and this is how he did it. And, and I've told you guys this before, but if you hear this, just it, it's just terrible. He says, I'm not saying it's true, but what if it's true? Well, guess what? A year later, he was teaching it like it was true. All right, he wanted to soften the folks up a little bit to introduce his false teaching. And he said, oh, no, you still have to make a willful choice to follow Jesus, but, hey, Jesus can be very, very persuasive. So almost everybody, whether they repent of their sins and trust in Christ or not, almost everybody will be in heaven. Well, that's clearly not orthodox. Right? It's not according to the faith that was handed down through the apostles. It's out of step with the context of Colossians, which is to confront these false teachers who don't know Christ. But we're still left with the question. What does it mean for Christ to reconcile all things to himself? Well, I think we just got to keep reading. Making peace by the blood of the cross. So remember, part of the curse in Genesis chapter 3, there'd be enmity between Satan and the seed of the woman. Well, how will this enmity be put to death? 
How will the enmity between Satan and man be put down? Through the head-crushing work of the Son. So in this text, for him to reconcile all things doesn't mean that everyone is going to be in heaven. Even Satan, oh, even Satan gets to come in. It's not it. It's that all things are brought back under their proper position under Christ. He brings peace, not by forgiving Satan, not by just pretending like people rejected Christ for their entire life, but by defeating Satan and being done with evil. We see it there actually in chapter 2, verse 15. It's, it's actually really clear that at the end of 14, he canceled our debt by nailing it to the cross, and it was through this cross work of Jesus that he did verse 15. He disarmed the rulers and authorities. Well, that's those wicked angels. And he put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Christ. So God will bring everything under the eternal rule of Jesus Christ, and he does it through the work of Christ on the cross. And what it means for Satan and those wicked angels who rebelled, there is no opportunity for repentance for them. They are triumphed over. They are disarmed. And one day they will be cast into the lake of fire. The fatal blow has been dealt by Christ at the cross and Satan is in his death throes and still attacking and seeking to oppose man and the gospel of Christ. But the blow has been dealt. What does this mean for, for unbelievers? For those who reject Christ, Philippians 2 says they will begrudgingly bow the knee. They won't gladly submit to Christ, but they will be brought under this sovereign rule. They will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And that doesn't mean that they're justified. It doesn't mean that they're saved in the end. In Revelation, there's those who are outside the gate. And it's those who refuse to let go of their sin and to turn to Christ. You can't come in the kingdom when you're clinging to your sin. Sin stays outside the gate. So for those who stand opposed to God, the seed of the serpent, the rebellion is pacified. It's put down. F.F. F. Bruce says it this way, the peace which Christ has brought may be freely accepted or imposed. It will, you could say it this way, it will either be freely accepted or compulsorily imposed. The earth, right? We said the earth fell under this curse. The earth fell under the strain of sin. It groans, awaiting its own redemption. Well, what's God going to do? Through the cross, He redeems all of creation. In the kingdom of Christ, the lion lays down with the, the lamb and the kid plays over the, the hole of the snake. Creation is restored to its intended purpose. And this reconciling work has particular application and benefit to those who turn and believe Christ. Look in verse 21. And you were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. 
He has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Prior to this saving work, each one of us was alienated from the life of God, darkened in our understanding, hostile in our minds, Paul says, and enslaved to sin, completely and utterly helpless. But now we are reconciled to God and assured that we are declared blameless and above reproach. How? Through the work of Christ, through the incarnation and the perfect obedience of the Son. Man, if it, it, does above reproach describe your last week? I mean, talking about perfectly, right? Hopefully the elders are living above reproach. Does blameless? Can that even categorize your mourning? Not if you have kids. I'm kidding. But you will be counted above reproach and blameless before him. And all of this, the defeat of Satan, the pacification of rebels, the renewal of creation, the salvation of sinners is by the blood of Christ. Through the wrath-bearing sacrifice of Jesus. That is how Christ conquers. You know, normally you would think that, that the offended party is the one who would seek reconciliation. Right? That's how it should work. Right? You say something sharp to somebody at work, or you say something rude to someone at your house. Aren't you supposed to be the one that should go and say, listen, Listen, I've, I've sinned and I, I just I hate, I hate what's between us. Like, can we please just reconcile? It's, it's supposed to be the offended party that goes to reconcile. But in the gospel, we have Jesus, the offended party, who makes reconciliation possible through his self-sacrificial substitutionary work where he bore the wrath, shedding his blood, on that cross for our sins so that we might be reconciled in the fullest sense. That we might be brought back to God and so that He might restore creation to its intended purpose and that God might dwell with His people. Christ will reconcile all things to Himself. He does it by bringing peace through the cross. Again, He will bring creation under His rule. Believers enjoy His presence forever. Creation is renewed. Satan and unbelievers are forced to bow and receive God's righteous judgment. So as we think about judgment and mercy, right, it's not right for us to view this as two competing interests in God. Two things on the scale. Which one will win out? It's actually through judgment that God saves. It's through judgment that God saves. It's through Christ bearing that judgment by which He might grant mercy to those who recognize their need. Right? Just recognize your need. Turn to Him. Call on Him. 
It's only by the work of Jesus that we can escape that sort of active displeasure, active hatred that God has for sin. And so we see in the cross that judgment and mercy meet. The judgment falls on Jesus to make mercy available to those who would turn to Him. We see in the cross God's utter hatred for sin. It costs the Son of God His life. God cannot simply excuse it. That would make Him a weak, unholy, unrighteous judge. The same way a judge in our court system would be unrighteous if he looked at a rapist and said, ah, you can go free. I'm a nice guy. God always unchangeably hates sin and He loves good. And in Christ, your sin is removed and you are robed with the perfect righteousness and goodness of Christ. You know, if all you had was Colossians, who... Who could have imagined that a passage, a paragraph, that starts out the way it does, He is the image of the invisible God, would end with making peace by the blood of His cross. Jesus Christ is the point of all creation. He's the architect of our faith, so that in everything He might have first place. That He might be preeminent. And He has earned it. Not only by being in the beginning, but through bearing God's judgment so that we might receive mercy. Let's pray together.